Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Thomas, we just wrapped up a fascinating conversation with one of my uh, favorite public intellectuals, Jane Gatsby who writes and thinks at the intersection of complexity theory and politics. It was uh, rather a different sort of interview, somewhat in the vein of what we've done with Samuel Bordia and uh, Valina Chakarova, uh, discussing broader social trends and uh, how societies and civilizations are structured and how they evolve. So uh, a little bit different from the quantum computing or crypto stuff that we often cover, but I thought it was really interesting. What were your impressions of the conversation? She's definitely a very bright young lady. She is, uh, um, she's challenging lots of assumptions and she wants to kind of blaze her own trails, which I applaud her for. Um, uh, I don't think she quite understands all the difficulties she'll run in in some of these trails she's blazing, but uh, that's that's all part of life. That's all the good stuff. And that's, uh, I, I think more people in the world should go down a path similar to what she's doing. So we asked her some challenging questions and she came up with some pretty darn good answers. So uh, yeah. I applaud her for that as well. <laughs> she, sh she shows a remarkable predilection for originality and for wanting to think things through from start to finish kind of independently. She's very original and she's very independent. Uh, and she goes after these big questions about what societies are, how moral orders are formed, how they evolve over time, and what that ultimate, ultimately means for everyone. And she does so drawing on an unusual toolkit, things like political philosophy and complexity theory. So I don't know, it's, it's pretty fascinating. She's like, I mean, I don't know, 25? She's like in her mid-20s. She, she's very, very young. So I'm really excited to see what she comes up with and, uh, and what com comes out of this project she's doing. So without further ado, this is episode 122 with Jane Gatsby. Tonight, we're joined by Jane Gatsby. Jane is a complexity theorist and political philosopher. Her digital series, Wonderland, explores philosophy and political theory from first principles, bringing listeners down the rabbit hole and into a world of exploration and curiosity. She is interested in how we can construct better cities of the future, rethinking traditional institutions, and challenging our assumptions of how governments can and should function. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futureaudiopodcast.com. Jane, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today. <laughs> What's my background? I always struggle with these questions. Like, I'm at university. I took political science and psychology. Um, but while I was in those courses, it was kind of like circa like 2016 to 2020. So I was watching the rise of like the first generation like IDW figures online. So people like Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and Sam Harris, who are all kind of introducing a new, new era of having these long form intellectual conversations and kind of like, not necessarily debates, but kind of tackling similar problems from different angles, talking about social and cultural issues, looking at them through like kind of political, philosophical and psychological lenses. 
And so I got really interested in the conversations that they were having. Um, and also a little bit frustrated sometimes because I'd be listening to them talking on a big stage being like, you guys are talking past one another. Like there's better answers to these uh, questions that you're debating. And eventually I felt like I wanted to throw my own voice into the ring and kind of bring my own point of view to the realm of talking about ideas on the internet. And that led to Wonderland. You want to give us a brief sketch of what that was, that what that project was? And I, it's been about two years. So if there are any updates, please feel free to use mm -hmm. this. I'm still writing it. There's going to be a, a second season as well. Um, Wonderland is kind of, I started working on it in the middle of the pandemic. And it was kind of an unexpected format that I stumbled along. I always struggle explaining it to people. It's essentially a podcast, but it's also available just to read on Substack. Um, and it takes you from first principles to political philosophy through the analogy of a fairy tale. So it's this little story where every single episode, they're essentially like long form essays, but then I do this thing where I oscillate between talking about like analyzing ideas and then telling a story to kind of keep the listener or reader engaged and kind of anchor it down to some more interesting examples to express the ideas that I'm discussing. So it builds up from like the first episode talks about what is philosophy and just explores that as a conceptual premise. And then the second episode just talks about metaphysics and the third one epistemology. So they build on upon each other. And then the later half of the series, I get into talking about political theory, um, which I'm also very passionate about. Have you ever thought about doing a Girdle Escher Bach kind of thing where it's, you know, you, you interleave this fiction and this nonfiction, but then the fiction and nonfiction are also metaphors for each other. And it just gets like mind fucky and warpy as, as you go along and, <laughs> Yeah, I read Go to Lescherbach in, like leading up to like in the first few months of the pandemic. And then that was one of the things that really inspired me to make Wonderland the format that, that it is, is this idea of like yeah, swapping between story that's kind of expressing the same ideas through analogy to some degree. Um, so the first few episodes, I definitely try to do that. And the later half, because it gets more political, the analogy feels a little bit more one to one. So it's less interesting because you're not kind of using the analogy to say something that maybe a purely uh, like analytical version would be across as easily i was i was playing around with um a storyline where it's kind of based on Gull gulliver's travel and the the little people in gulliver's travel those were the lilliputians and um and i was i was thinking well wouldn't it be interesting having a character a little character and his name was L lily putin and it was all about this little leader of Russia, who, because he's short, he's trying to take over the world. And I thought it would be real interesting going down that path and and somehow tie Gulliver's travel into what's happening in the world today. Uh, but uh, that's that's a, a really half baked idea if, if if it even got halfway baked. Well, we have we have <laughs> chat. We have Chat GPT now. You that's that's a prompt away. The whole story. Oh yeah, I guess I guess we could do that. Yes. How <laughs> well it does with that. So Jane, uh, tell me a little bit about the intersection of complexity theory and politics. There's lots of different ways of trying to get purchase on questions of political philosophy. Why is complexity theory an especially fruitful approach to that problem? Um, I think the way I the way I think about complexity is often kind of couched in this idea of like the analogy of an anthill as a complex adaptive system. And it uses the fact that there is variance or inconsistencies in the system. You've got little ants that will wander off in a different direction than like the rest of the forager ants that are collecting from a single food supply. The variance in the system is what allows it to adapt in relation to the environment and refine itself over, in, over time and kind of keep up, upgrading itself as the external world continues to change. 
And so politically, I guess I'm interested in the idea of um, like charter city states and things like new experimental political systems where a small group of people can go off and kind of carve out a space to try new ideas and practice them. The idea being that if you've got different modes of experimentation available to you, then those um, different like tests of ways of conducting your political systems can inform the current kind of norms that we have. What, what do you think are the major hurdles that are stopping that project from getting off the ground? Because it's, it's not an uncommon insight to say that we need more experimentation. We need something more like a Silicon Valley for governance. So we need startup governments where it's easier to break off from the prevailing political order, establish a new political order and just see how it goes. And then you, you know, do a pull request for whatever, you know, constitutional amendments seem to be doing a pretty good job back into the, the larger society. And yet I just don't see that much of it. So why do you think that is? Is it just the top, the, the idea, uh, it's not time for that idea yet, or are there bigger, bigger hurdles in place? Um, I think probably like, at least for me, that was never an idea that had entered my mind before. I don't think people tend to think political systems, we're so used to kind of democratic systems of government where it's like, this is the world you're living in. And if you want to change it, then you're going to go and campaign and you're going to go delay to their causes that you want to support. And you're going to try to instigate change in your immediate environment. Whereas this idea of kind of breaking off and creating your own niche elsewhere is actually putting the duty upon you to go and um, it's moving yourself rather than trying to modify the world that you're existing inside of. Um, and I don't think that idea is very popular at the moment, but I think it will increase in popularity as we kind of get more used to having the internet around as something that's facilitating people to kind of connect and share ideas regardless of where they're located because politics is no longer this local feeling thing. It's something that's much more global. And so you could connect with people in different parts of the world who share similar values or are interested in conducting similar sorts of experiments as you, and you can actually get a large enough group of them to band together. Um, so like Balaji Srinivasan, he talks about this a lot in his book, like the network state. Um, and I kind of fall into a similar uh, mode of thinking about things like because in the next upcoming century, we have the internet at our fingertips, that's going to change a way a lot of the ways that we think about political systems but that hasn't been the norm. And so it's kind of going to represent a changing in the tides, I guess. Yeah, so part of um, part of the problem is, is that we don't have any, uh, the ability to create a brand new country to test things out. Um, I, I like to ask the question, are, are we better off with relatively more countries in the world or relatively fewer countries in the world? And I lean towards this idea of having relatively more countries in the world, which would give us the opportunity to experiment and and try new things. Um, so, can you can you kind of explain what the definition of a network state is? Um, I can try. Essentially, I think it's just the idea of having um, a group of people that are networked together first and foremost through connecting with one another online, who then would maybe go and create a charter and create a system of governance that they want to abide by. And then I think Balaji's vision is that you could have then different hubs where people are enacting these new principles of however you're going to operate your political structures. And you they don't necessarily all have to be right next door to one another, right? It could be where you're going to fly from different cities. Um, and all of these places will share similar rules of governance that are going to be different from maybe like the larger political structures that they're nested inside of, right? So like you've got Hong Kong, which is going to be operating by a different set of rules than its surrounding governance structures. Are, are okay. there any charter city projects that you find really interesting today? I don't know if you've been following um, Prospero or 
or any of the others in South America? Or are there any that you think have a lot of potential? To be honest, I've not been um, attending too much to current kind of Im implementations. Um, I like I'm aware of them, but I am very interested personally in my own kind of thinking from the bottom up. And my big interest in political philosophy comes from this idea of like, if I was to give you a blank sheet of paper and say, you're the king of the world, do with it as you please, what what makes sense? How can you if, you, if you were given infinite kind of resources and possibilities, what directions would you take it in? Um, which is a very idyllic way of looking at things, but I like to think that when you're approaching it from first principles, once you have a structure formulated that can kind of retroactively inform the current norms and institutions that you're operating inside of. Um, so I'm not sure like other charter cities, how much they're actually, what, what sort of experiments they're running in terms of different forms of governance. I'm definitely curious, but I've just, I've been more focused on my own answers to those questions. How, how do you approach a first principles um, exploration of political philosophy? Like what does that process look like? Um, for me, like I, I kind of take you in Wonderland, I take you through all those steps. So it kind of ends in the first half where I'm talking about philosophy. It ends on this kind of moral treatise where I'm talking about, you know, you should approach your life through a, a basis of individualism and kind of like operating with your own senses in mind as your best charter of action. Um, and so then that kind of brings about a desire to create a political system that's going to allow people to pursue their own ends in some capacity. Um, so then my first principles approach to the political component of that is kind of, for a long time, I was interested in libertarianism, but kind of wrestling with like, well, what's the difference between this and anarchism? And how do you like, or anarcho-capitalism, all these different formulations, what makes sense and what doesn't? And the answer I landed upon is like, anarchism is just a pure description of reality. Like life is inherently anarchical and you may find yourself born into a certain system where you're living as a slave or under a regime or in a, you know, democratic system of today. but you, the, the circumstances that brought you there are kind of chaotic and outside of your control. You never consented to be a part of the system that you're inside of. So in that sense, everything's already anarchical. And then the more interesting answer to the question to me is like, so then how do you, given that you're born into whatever political structure non-consensually, what are the tools that you have in order to navigate yourself out of that system should you desire to? So then I come to like, okay, well, money is a good way of facilitating if changing the environment around you or facilitating, you know, new um, ventures. And so then that becomes like the foundational principle of the political system I'm looking for is like, um, I'm very interested in like following in the line of uh, Curtis Yarvin's ideas. So this kind of idea of like a novel, like monarchical capitalistic system where it's essentially like a pay to play subscription service city. So um, because I'm a big believer in free markets and things. And so I think if you could just give your, you know, $10,000 a month citizen subscription free to Elon Musk and then enter into the pearly gates of some futuristic city, people would be incentivized to do that and he could experiment with whatever new systems he wants to implement. State so I, service. I, yeah, right. I see I see a lot of the systems um, that we're using today and I, I view, view them through this, uh, a different lens of a sliding scale. So would the world be better off or would my country be better off if we were relatively fair on the scale or relatively less fair on the scale. So we could slide it back and forth and, and then kind of analyze how that would do, uh, how that would change things. Uh, would we be relatively better off if we were um, infinitely freer to do whatever we wanted to or less free to do what we wanted to? And, and then as you go through these scales and, and incidentally, this this idea of total freedom so that 
somebody could uh, um, could do whatever they want and they could destroy their neighbor's property and they're free to do that and um, uh, or would it be better if we had relatively less freedom uh, and and so when we look at understanding all the implications of all of these uh, kind of attributes that we we're, we're kind of trying to establish on this um, as as kind of a foundational structure for what we want to create um, it's 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 real interesting exercise to go through so um, and I'm pretty sure that most of the the startup virtual countries, virtual states that they're trying to make haven't haven't done that exercise yet. Yeah, I've definitely found that I've looped like I was raised by very like just generally liberal parents. I never had like a TV in my house growing up. There's absolutely no conversations about politics at the dinner table. Um, and then when I kind of initially got interested in political discourse, I kind of realized, oh, I've never once considered that a conservative or like someone who's economically right wing would have anything interesting to say. And then I kind of started learning those arguments. But now I've looped all the way around where I've come to this like sort of monarchistic view of total control exercising over a, a government. Um, but in that, I then am actually actually advocating for much more kind of liberal constrained like socialist policies. So it's like, you know, your little network city that you're creating, of course, it has to have a strong social security net and foundation of things that are going to maybe constrain their desires even more than they would necessarily think they want on the outset. Um, but at least those rules have been kind of thought through and integrated and they're ones that you're consenting yourself to rather than them being opposed upon you externally. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Why would that be a superior model? So I, I'm not sure at all that I buy Curtis's contention that the only way to get to a free market is to essentially create it as a product and then offer it in, in the form of state as a service, as I, I sort of quipped earlier. Why do you think that that is the best way to arrive at a, at a capitalist society? Um, because I don't, I think there's too many inhibitions upon the way that we're living right now, right? Like we kind of have this problem with our governance structures that things can get, regulations can get imposed and then they kind of calcify, but you don't, mm -hmm. once they're in, in a place that it's really hard to break those things up again, we accept a lot of norms and things kind of, there's feedback loops that you enter into, right? Where then there's going to be regulations that control, like in a downtown, maybe you have to have X amount of parking spots per car or something like that. So there's all these external forces that are shaping um, our environments that we live in more so than we necessarily notice. And so I think my idea is like strip away all those things and then only reinstate the things that are necessary here and now. And then there's all this extra space for people to move and experiment and try different things. But I don't think what we're existing in right now is to me like, um, I, don't, I don't think there's that much freedom that people have. Oh, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all, but I'm not, I'm still not sure how monarchy comes out the other side of that analysis. Mm. So I, I agree with everything you say, but 
right? But the part where you go and therefore we need a king, right? Is right. the part that's the leap that I'm sort of having trouble with. Like, like, sure, right, how, fair, how, fair. Do you, how do you get there? Yeah. Okay, so I guess I first of all I should say like he like monarch goal is like a little bit tongue in cheek, like some and more so think about like yeah like a business where they've just got like one operating president, CEO, a guy in charge. That's the idea. One person who's responsible. Um, in the sixth episode of Wonderland, where I talk about these ideas, um, it's called the structure of freedom, and I kind of I discuss how like there's this kind of two different tensions that are trying to hold on that you can use to acquire power one is physical force and the other is like money a bribe of some sort right like if you have money you can buy security guards and if you have brawn then you can go beat up a rich guy and take his money and so those are like the two fundamental power forces that are competing against one another and trying to opt for control and so in our current like democratic systems you've got the conservatives are more fearful of um there being like physical limitations upon their government like physical things inhibiting them whereas uh, liberals are more concerned about the idea that money is going to be coming in and corrupting the political decision making mechanisms um so both are kind of trying jockeying for control trying to make sure that this like either power force is staying out of the system of governance um and then i think the proposition by the idea of like if you instead of trying to like be like where is power concentrated and you're constantly on the lookout for trying to you know who watches the watchman and all these things just concentrate power in all of its forms, both physical and monetary, in one consolidated place. And that way there's no question as to who's in control of things, right? It's not like in a democratic system, it's decisions start being made and nobody's really sure like who's to be made accountable because it's the populace that are making the decisions. Then there's no um, like culpability, right? Because the responsibility is too diffused. So if you're like, this guy's either gonna give you what he says he's gonna give you or not, then it's very clear to see are, are they fulfilling their promises or not? Are they a competent ruler or not? And then you've got a sort of vote with your feet dynamic where people will shop around for different jurisdictions that treat them better. And you mm -hmm. have sort of market forces applied more broadly to the provision of public, <laughs> public goods and defense services. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Yeah, part of part of that thinking is based on, uh, is there such a thing as a utopian state? Um, and... Um, my my thinking has always been that that's uh, a false assumption, but uh, what's the closest proximity we can get to it, um, and what would constitute that, and what are the attributes of this uh, utopian state that we're trying to go after, and then um, if we would try to approach that, uh, let's say uh, 2030, 2040, how would we work backwards in our thinking, what things have to be accomplished to get there? What are the uh, landmark uh, deals and accomplishments and compromises along the way that would have to come into play to to let a future like that unfold? Mm -hmm. um, so, I'm uh, per personally, I, I I don't think that we are ever going to get anywhere close to this. Uh, "Quote unquote utopian state." Uh, the, uh, I, I I think that we can have um, a, a better grade of systems. I think we can have a better grade of problems that we need to solve. I think we can 
Um, I, I think there's lots of room for improvement, but as, as things are changing, the technology is changing, uh, that kind of forces us to constantly rethink all of our systems at the same time. Um, so it, it comes, becomes a very challenging dynamic to, to actually do anything that's concrete and meaningful on a long-term basis. Yeah, yeah, I definitely don't think this, like my interest in political philosophy or like the, the kind of charters that I'm trying to write are then going to be a guarantee of like, this is the end all be all utopian vision. But I think it is kind of speaking to what you're saying of like, if you have an ideal or some sort of goal or in some reasons that you're being motivated to walk, work towards that direction, then at least you've got something to kind of negotiate with and try to strive towards. And then that thing can constantly be changing and evolving and updating over time. And maybe there's also a myriad of different solutions that are going to work for different people. This is another thing I'm very like passionate about is the idea that like, well, maybe I want to be living in more of like a, you know, capitalist techno utopia 30 years down the line, but I have friends and lots of people I know it's like, I know I want to be like a back to the lander and just go live in a commune and get rid of money and do things much more simply. And I don't think there's any necessarily conflict between these two groups. If anything, they'll both benefit from the existence of the other because there's times when you want, you know, organic vegetables and there's times when you want like life-saving modern medical care. Um, but currently we're existing in a system that's causing those people with different values in terms of the like, systems they want to be existing inside of, they're put in direct conflict with one another rather than there being this idea of, well, great, you can both go off and pursue those ends. And that's that's a beautiful thing. There, there should be no reason why there needs to be conflict created. Yeah, it, it, it strikes me that there's a huge percentage of society that um, bases all of their thinking on the world would be a much better place if everybody just thought the way that I did. If if we had more people just like me, the whole world would be much better off. Um, and that is such a bogus uh, kind of uh, premise for uh, thinking. But but sadly, I think we have a lot of people that are in that uh, fall into that camp right now. And uh, so anyway, I think we're much better off having very diverse groups of people and very di diverse thinking. And, um, and and people that challenge other people uh, that that keeps me uh, keeps me fresh and uh, creative and thinking in new ways all the time. So <laughs> also why it's also why his skin is so soft. He's always <laughs> 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 Yeah. Um, so I I applaud what you're doing there. I. Um, do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers, able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. We have these questions that we ask all the time, is, is anything we're doing today really matter? Um, is is this going to turn into the thing that I'm really hoping it'll turn into? Um, because effecting change is very difficult. I mean, it it takes a lot to. Um, it's not just a one-time incident. It's not just one thing that you do. It's uh, kind of constantly doing, uh, working towards it over your entire lifetime, and maybe you can 
move the needle a half an inch in one direction or another, but uh, it's it's very difficult to to affect change. Yeah, I struggle with that a lot, like questioning if this is something that's worth pursuing, especially if I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be pursuing another like maybe nor more normal career where I could just go and make a good salary and not have to think too much. But I keep coming back to this fact that like, it's the only thing that feels meaningful for me to be pursuing. And so okay. I kind of have to try and see it through to the end. And then if eventually it means, okay, now I have to go back to school and do something else and I'll be okay with that. But right now it just, I have a very strong sense that the some of the ideas that I'm passionate about are like important and need to be communicated and can go on and hopefully impact the world in a better way. I think that's all you need to know to know that something is worth doing. What what would success look like for you, say five years out, 10 years out? What would that look Good like? Question. Um, I would, I'd love to be able to like kind of make money from doing my research, whatever capacity. Like I want to finish writing Wonderland. And then kind of my current desire is to start like some sort of online community. I'm not sure if that's a Discord server or like a, a bunch of people in a Notion doc or what, but essentially like furthering the ideas that I'm developing and being like, okay, let, let's actually try to write a charger, charter from the from scratch um, and kind of make a lot of these areas because there's so many different areas of political philosophy to venture into. And I want to be able to have interesting conversations and be challenged and have people that can bring their own resources and insights to the table and kind of crowdsource a bunch of information and development along these ideas. Um, and so that's one thing I'm really passionate about, but then more outside of that, I'd love to just be able to kind of do more podcasts and public speaking engagements or debates or whatever it is. Um, and then I'm really not sure like what makes sense for me. I really want to be a, like, a I really want to homeschool my kids eventually. So my timeline for my career always kind of puts off within like the next five to 10 years. I'm like, I need to do something for a little while. And then when I'm 40, I'll think about it again. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> That's fascinating. Uh, well, you've been on the Futurati podcast, so I hope this isn't a high high watermark. But um, <laughs> great, great! I'm so happy you invited me on. That's fascinating. Yeah. Go ahead. So should should I ask some of these impossible questions? Yeah, yeah. We're we're gonna do some. Sure. Uh, we we were just chatting before we started recording. Uh, Thomas has got this essay that's done really well, where he's put out. 10 questions, or I think I think it's 10 questions that neither science nor religion can answer. And <laughs> it's, appar it's apparently done quite well. Uh, this is just a perennially fascinating topic for people. So we've never done this before, but we just thought we'd fire a bunch of unanswerable questions at you. And, and see but I'm going to try to answer them? Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and you have five seconds each. So, you know, solve okay, the mystery. Okay, that's no problem. <laughs> I'm very confident. Okay. Yeah. Um, why, why is there an exception to every rule? Um, because of dynamic quality, in the words of Robert Piercig. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Uh, I don't. Did, was that in Lila or in? Um... In Lila, the idea that you—it's the same thing as the wandering ant. It's like for every rule, there has to be an exception because the world is in a constantly changing place, so you can never account for everything. That's a fair um, answer, I think. Next one. Thank you. Yeah, why do why do logic and reason fail to explain that which is true? Um, I don't think they do. Um, I don't okay. Know. <laughs> uh, okay. How, how else would you know? Like, how, how would you know something was true except through logic and reason? The only way you could, like, it, it presupposes the foundations that you're trying to reject with the question. And even something like being in love, like, I can know that I'm in love, but, but reason is, I can listen to my heart. Like, like, to me, I always take a much more broad definition of reason, of kind of like any causal explanation is reason. It doesn't have to be like one plus one math, it can be anything in the world. 
Is is there such a thing as inherently bad knowledge or is all knowledge value neutral? All knowledge is value neutral. Oh, that's interesting. See, we uh we we were debating that before. I think that uh <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any knowledge that you could just say is inherently bad because I don't believe in that sort of uh that sort how, of how about, how about two plus two equals five? I, well, that's I not don't knowledge. think that's knowledge. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't count. As, that's 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 just a statement. That's not knowledge, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's in your head now, so it's knowledge. <laughs> what else? So to be knowledge, it's got to be it's got to be true. You've got to believe it, and it has to be true in order for it to be knowledge. It has to be. Sure. It has to correspond to an actual statement of fact somewhere in the universe, and it has to be a thing that you believe, right? So it can't be untethered. <laughs> like so, so if I memorized a syllogism in Chinese but didn't know what it meant. That wouldn't count as knowledge, even though it is true. Yeah. It has to be something I understand, I believe, and that also corresponds to a true statement about the world. In okay. Order to be known. And, I, I like that definition of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> is the universe finite or infinite? Um, infinite because of quantum, or not quantum, computational irreducibility. What do you mean? Okay. Well, well, so, so you can never compute all the what states you can never track or compute all the states of the universe, and therefore there's always more computation to be done. So, I view so it not, as like an I, sorry, I view it as like an infinite universe as an information processing system that's constantly unfolding and expanding. And so, I mean, I guess maybe it could end one day, but insofar as we're experiencing it, it's going to keep going outwards. That's okay. So, so you didn't even think about it being like physically infinite or finite. You you went to just a totally different place. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, yeah, in terms of physicality, I fuck if I know. I don't give a shit. <laughs> but it'll keep going. It'll keep getting bigger. You know, entropy and things, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, why does anything exist? Um, it's a good question. Because um, anything you say, I'm going to ask what came before that. Anything exists. I feel like it's a like almost a non-question. Like you just have to accept existence as a face value. Like you can't go underneath it. Okay. All right. All right. Why does time exist? Why does time exist? Um, it's the same thing because the universe is like a, a computation, and so each everything's progressing, it's unfolding in one direction. Well, okay. is the universe a, is a is the universe a computation or can it be modeled that way? Because I, I kind of go back and forth on that. Where you know, like a physical system isn't executing a computation; it's just doing whatever it does. And then we might later try to model it computationally, but I don't think those reduce to the same thing. I don't think they're isomorphisms. I guess I think it starts with like universe starts with simple like simple properties and simple rules, right? And then those things just start interacting with one another. And then you get this bloom of like much more complex phenomena, but like it starts off really simply. So I think of it in like computational terms, I guess. Um, you read Stephen Wolfram a while back and. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why, why do humans matter? Uh, because you are one. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's like the concept of mattering has to come from something, right? And, and I think that when you, when you have life, that's what gives rise to the concept of good or bad. And that's what it is to matter. It matters to something that's alive. And so the concept of mattering has to come from an antecedent. But also, being like such... if, 
if I was a goldfish, like I probably would be apathetic towards the state of humans, but I think that goldfish matter on some level. <laughs> so like, I think like you, because you're born as a human, you've got a vested interest in what's going on here with the other humans. Um, but if I was a rock on some alien planet, I'd probably be pretty apathetic. I'm actually just passing as a human. <laughs> <laughs> okay, why are humans so fallible? Um, life's complicated. Yeah, knowledge is hard, right? Like you're yeah, not it's omnipotent, not our fault. And, and like reason operates volitionally. Like you, you have to try to arrive at true beliefs. You have to try to act on your knowledge, and that's just not a guaranteed outcome. It's 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 not deterministic. Like you, you have to you're sustain the effort. Succeed. Yeah, and you could just do it wrong. Like the the act of thinking is not automatic, and it's just easy to screw it up. You don't account for all the facts. You arrive at a concept that's not correct. You you misapply mm -hmm. it. You just get overwhelmed with all the details and don't properly suss them out lot, lot, yeah lots of things yeah do human accomplishments have long-term meaning yes hold on <laughs> okay. but I guess long term is like so you could really be any level of one house so like 100 years 100 million uh, i'll say so they, they mattered once so that means they've kind of mattered forever okay and and why is the future unknowable? Uh, back to the computational irreducibility thing. I think you can't stimulate the universe inside of a thing because then it's like you're just, there's no end state that you can approximate, right? Like if you, even if you got all the initial conditions and plugged them into a computer program, the program would still be lagging behind reality, right? An equal step. So you can't fast track it. Well, so do you, do you reject the simulation hypothesis then? You don't think it you reject that particular yeah yeah i think it's really silly i think running around it's the same thing being like guys what if we're dreaming right now like whoa <laughs> like it's kind of non-philosophy <laughs> like okay cool that'd be crazy but i have to wake up and eat tomorrow so i'm gonna focus on that thanks <laughs> that's fascinating that was a lot of fun are there any more thomas yeah there was one one more what it, what is what is the purpose of death It's a, it's a good note. It's a good note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> I think just things can't last forever. That's just a that's just a fact of matter, right? Okay. Every everything comes to to an end yeah. as this episode is coming to an end now. Perfect segue. Perfect. Yeah, you can't. Perfect segue. Not only can't say anything more. That was too good a segue. Jane Gatsby. <laughs> yeah, if if you uh, if people want to find out more about you or follow your work, where, where should they go? Uh, they should go to welcome to wonderland.substack.com. That's where they can read all of Wonderland if they're curious about that or listen to it. Um, or just linktree slash Jane Gatsby for all of my socials and things. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and all this stuff. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much. I'm glad we finally got this put together. It was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Jane. Okay, thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>